Section three of The Chorus Girl and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Chorus Girl and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. Translated by Constance Garnett. My Life. The Story of a Provincial. Part One. The superintendent said to me, I only keep you out of regard for your worthy father. But for that, you would have been sent flying long ago. I replied to him, You flatter me too much, Your Excellency, in assuming that I am capable of flying. And then I heard him say, Take that gentleman away, he gets upon my nerves. Two days later, I was dismissed. And in this way I have, during the years I have been regarded as grown up, lost nine situations, to the great mortification of my father, the architect of our town. I have served in various departments, but all these nine jobs have been as alike as one drop of water is to another. I had to sit, write, listen to rude or stupid observations, and go on doing so till I was dismissed. When I came in to my father, he was sitting buried in a low armchair with his eyes closed, his dry, emaciated face, with a shade of dark blue where it was shaved, he looked like an old Catholic organist, expressed meekness and resignation. Without responding to my greeting or opening his eyes, he said, if my dear wife and your mother were living, your life would have been a source of continual distress to her. I see the divine providence in her premature death. I beg you, unhappy boy, he continued, opening his eyes, tell me, what am I to do with you? In the past, when I was younger, my friends and relations had known what to do with me. Some of them used to advise me to volunteer for the army, others to get a job in a pharmacy, and others in the telegraph department. Now that I am over twenty-five, that grey hairs are beginning to show on my temples, and that I have been already in the army, and in a pharmacy, and in the telegraph department, it would seem that all earthly possibilities have been exhausted, and people have given up advising me, and merely sigh or shake their heads. What do you think about yourself? my father went on. By the time they are your age, young men have a secure social position. Well, look at you. You are a proletarian, a beggar, a burden on your father. And as usual, he proceeded to declare that the young people of today were on the road to perdition through infidelity, materialism, and self-conceit and that amateur theatricals ought to be prohibited because they seduced young people from religion and their duties. Tomorrow we shall go together, and you shall apologize to the superintendent and promise him to work conscientiously, he said in conclusion. You ought not to remain one single day with no regular position in society. I beg you to listen to me, I said sullenly, expecting nothing good from this conversation. What you call a position in society is the privilege of capital and education. Those who have neither wealth nor education earn their daily bread by manual labor, and I see no grounds for my being an exception. 
when you begin talking about manual labor it is always stupid and vulgar said my father with irritation understand you dense fellow understand you adulpate that besides coarse physical strength you have the divine spirit a spark of the holy fire which distinguishes you in the most striking way from the ass or the reptile and brings your nearer to the deity this fire is the fruit of the efforts of the best of mankind during thousands of years your great-grandfather Polozniv, the general, fought at Borodino. Your grandfather was a poet, an orator, and a marshal of nobility. Your uncle is a schoolmaster, and lastly I, your father, am an architect. All the Polozniv's have guarded the sacred fire for you to put it out. One must be just, I said. Millions of people put up with manual labor and let them put up with it they don't know how to do anything else anybody even the most abject fool or criminal is capable of manual labor such labor is the distinguishing mark of the slave and the barbarian while the holy fire is vouchsafed only to a few to continue this conversation was unprofitable. My father worshipped himself, and nothing was convincing to him but what he said himself. Besides, I knew perfectly well that the disdain with which he talked of physical toil was founded not so much on reverence for the sacred fire as on a secret dread that I should become a workman and should set the whole town talking about me. What was worse... All my contemporaries had long ago taken their degrees and were getting on well, and the son of the manager of the state bank was already a collegiate assessor, while I, his only son, was nothing. To continue the conversation was unprofitable and unpleasant, but I still sat on and feebly retorted, hoping that I might at last be understood. The whole question, of course, was clear and simple and only concerned with the means of my earning my living. But the simplicity of it was not seen, and I was talked to in mawkishly rounded phrases of Borodino, of the sacred fire, of my uncle a forgotten poet who had once written poor and artificial verses. I was rudely called an adulpate and a dense fellow and how i longed to be understood in spite of everything i loved my father and my sister and it had been my habit from childhood to consult them a habit so deeply rooted that i doubt whether i could ever have got rid of it whether i were in the right or the wrong i was in constant dread of wounding them constantly afraid that my father's thin neck would turn crimson and that he would have a stroke to sit in a stuffy room i began to copy to compete with a typewriter is shameful and humiliating for a man of my age what can the sacred fire have to do with it it's intellectual work anyway said my father but that's enough let us cut short this conversation and in any case i warn you 
if you don't go back to your work again, but follow your contemptible propensities, then my daughter and I will banish you from our hearts. I shall strike you out of my will, I swear by the living God. With perfect sincerity, to prove the purity of the motives by which I wanted to be guided in all my doings, I said, the question of inheritance does not seem very important to me. I shall renounce it all beforehand. For some reason or other, quite to my surprise, these words were deeply resented by my father. He turned crimson. Don't dare to talk to me like that, stupid, he shouted in a thin, shrill voice. Wastrel! and with a rapid, skilful, and habitual movement he slapped me twice in the face. "'You are forgetting yourself!' When my father beat me as a child, I had to stand up straight, with my hands held stiffly to my trouser seams, and look him straight in the face. And now, when he hit me, I was utterly overwhelmed, and as though I was still a child, drew myself up and tried to look him in the face. My father was old and very thin, but his delicate muscles must have been as strong as leather, for his blows hurt a good deal. I staggered back into the passage, and there he snatched up his umbrella, and with it hit me several times on the head and shoulders. At that moment my sister opened the drawing-room door to find out what the noise was, but at once turned away with a look of horror and pity without uttering a word in my defence. My determination not to return to the government office, but to begin a new life of toil, was not to be shaken. All that was left for me to do was to fix upon the special employment, and there was no particular difficulty about that, as it seemed to me that I was very strong and fitted for the very heaviest labor, I was faced with a monotonous life of toil in the midst of hunger, coarseness, and stench, continually preoccupied with earning my daily bread. And, who knows, as I returned from my work along Great Dvoryansky Street, I might very likely envy Dolzhikov, the engineer who lived by intellectual work, but at the moment, thinking over all my future hardships, made me light-hearted. At times I had dreamed of spiritual activity, imagining myself a teacher, a doctor, or a writer, but these dreams remained dreams. The taste of intellectual pleasures for the theatre, for instance, and for reading, was a passion with me, but whether I had any ability for intellectual work I don't know. At school I had had an unconquerable aversion for Greek so that I was only in the fourth class when they had to take me from school. For a long while I had coaches preparing me for the fifth class. Then I served in various government offices, spending the greater part of the day in complete idleness, and I was told that was intellectual work. My activity in the scholastic and official sphere had required neither mental application nor talent, nor special qualifications, nor creative impulse. It was mechanical. Such intellectual work I put on a lower level than physical toil. I despise it. And I don't think that for one moment it could serve as a justification for an idle, careless life, as it is indeed nothing but a sham, 
one of the forms of that same idleness real intellectual work i have in all probability never known evening came on we lived in great dvoryansky street it was the principal street in the town and in the absence of decent public gardens our beau monde used to use it as a promenade in the evenings the charming street did to some extent take the place of a public garden as on each side of it there was a row of poplars which smelt sweet particularly after rain and acacias tall bushes of lilac wild cherries and apple trees hung over the fences and palings the may twilight the tender young greenery with its shifting shades the scent of the lilac the buzzing of the insects the stillness the warmth how fresh and marvelous it all is though spring is repeated every year i stood at the garden gate and watched the passers-by with most of them i had grown up and at one time played pranks now they might have been disconcerted by my being near them for i was poorly and unfashionably dressed and they used to say of my very narrow trousers and huge clumsy boots that they were like sticks of macaroni stuck in boats besides i had a bad reputation in the town because i had no decent social position and used often to play billiards in cheap taverns and also perhaps because i had on occasion been holed up before an officer of the police though i had done nothing whatever to account for this in the big house opposite someone was playing the piano at dolzhikov's it was beginning to get dark and stars were twinkling in the sky here my father in an old top hat with wide upturned brim walked slowly by with my sister on his arm bowing in response to greetings look up he said to my sister pointing to the sky with the same umbrella with which he had beaten me that afternoon look up at the sky even the tiniest stars are all worlds how insignificant is man in comparison with the universe and he said this in a tone that suggested that it was particularly agreeable and flattering to him that he was so insignificant how absolutely devoid of talent and imagination he was sad to say he was the only architect in town and in the fifteen to twenty years that i could remember not one single decent house had been built in it when anyone asked him to plan a house he usually drew first the reception hall and drawing-room just as in old days the boarding-school missies always started from the stove when they danced so this artistic ideas could only begin and develop from the hall and drawing-room to them he tacked on a dining-room a nursery a study linking the rooms together with doors and so they all inevitably turned into passages and every one of them had two or even three unnecessary doors his imagination must have been lacking in clearness extremely muddled curtailed as though feeling that something was lacking he invariably had recourse to all sorts of outbuildings planting one beside another 
and I can see now the narrow entries, the poky little passages, the crooked staircases leading to half-landings where one could not stand upright, and where, instead of a floor, there were three huge steps like the shelves of a bathhouse, and the kitchen was invariably in the basement with a brick floor and vaulted ceilings. The front of the house had a harsh, stubborn expression, the lines of it were stiff and timid, the roof was low-pitched and, as it were, squashed down, and the fat, well-fed-looking chimneys were invariably crowned by wire-caps with squeaking black cowls. And for some reason all these houses built by my father, exactly like one another, vaguely reminded me of his top-hat and the back of his head, stiff and stubborn-looking. In the course of years they have grown used in the town to the poverty of my father's imagination. It has taken root and become our local style. This same style my father had brought into my sister's life also, beginning with christening her Cleopatra, just as he had named me Misail. When she was a little girl, he scared her by references to the stars, to the sages of ancient times, to our ancestors, and discoursed at length on the nature of life and duty, and now, when she was twenty-six, he kept up the same habits, allowing her to walk arm in arm with no one but himself, and imagining for some reason that sooner or later a suitable young man would be sure to appear and to desire to enter into matrimony with her from respect for his personal qualities. She adored my father, feared him, and believed in his exceptional intelligence. It was quite dark, and gradually the street grew empty. The music had ceased in the house opposite, the gate was thrown wide open, and a team with three horses trotted frolicking along our street with a soft tinkle of little bells. That was the engineer going for a drive with his daughter. It was bedtime. I had my own room in the house, but I lived in a shed in the yard under the same roof as a brick barn, which had been built some time or other, probably to keep harness in. Great hooks were driven into the wall. Now it was not wanted, and for the last thirty years my father had stowed away in it his newspapers, which for some reason he had bound in half-yearly volumes, and allowed nobody to touch. Living there I was less liable to be seen by my father and his visitors, and I fancied that if I did not live in a real room, and did not go into the house every day to dinner, my father's words that I was a burden upon him did not sound so offensive. My sister was waiting for me. Unseen by my father, she had brought me some supper, not a very large slice of cold veal, and a piece of bread. In our house, such saying as, A penny saved is a penny gained, and take care of the pence and the pounds will take care of themselves, and so on, were frequently repeated, and my sister, weighed down by these vulgar maxims, did her utmost to cut down the expenses, and so we fared badly. Putting the plate on the table, she sat down on my bed and began to cry. Misail, 
she said what a way to treat us she did not cover her face her tears dropped on her bosom and hands and there was a look of distress on her face she fell back on the pillow and abandoned herself to her tears sobbing and quivering all over you have left the service again she articulated oh how awful it is but do understand sister do understand i said and i was overcome with despair because she was crying as ill luck would have it the kerosene in my little lamp was exhausted it began to smoke and was on the point of going out and the old hooks on the walls looked down sullenly and their shadows flickered have mercy on us said my sister sitting up father is in terrible distress and i am ill i shall go out of my mind what will become of you she said sobbing and stretching out her arms to me i beg you i implore you for our dear mother's sake i beg you to go back to the office i can't cleopatra i said feeling that a little more and i should give way i cannot why not my sister went on why not well if you can't get on with the head look out for another post why shouldn't you get a situation on the railway for instance i have just been talking to anyuta blagovo she declares they would take you on the railway line and even promised to try and get a post for you for god's sake misail think a little think a little i implore you we talked a little longer and i gave way i said that the thought of a job on the railway that was being constructed had never occurred to me and that if she liked i was ready to try it she smiled joyfully through her tears and squeezed my hand and then went on crying because she could not stop while i went to the kitchen for some kerosene among the devoted supporters of amateur theatricals concerts and tableaux vivants for charitable objects the ajogins who lived in their own house in great dvoryansky street took a foremost place they always provided the room and took upon themselves all the troublesome arrangements and the expenses they were a family of wealthy landowners who had an estate of some nine thousand acres in the district and a capital house but they did not care for the country and lived winter and summer alike in the town the family consisted of the mother a tall spare refined lady with short hair a short jacket and a flat-looking skirt in the english fashion and three daughters who when they were spoken of were called not by their names but simply the eldest the middle and the youngest they all had ugly sharp chins and were short-sighted and round-shouldered they were dressed like their mother they lisped disagreeably and yet in spite of that infallibly took part in every performance and were continually doing something with a charitable object acting reciting singing 
They were very serious and never smiled, and even in a musical comedy they played without the faintest trace of gaiety, with a business-like air, as though they were engaged in bookkeeping. I loved our theatricals, especially the numerous, noisy, and rather incoherent rehearsals, after which they always gave a supper. In the choice of the plays and the distribution of the parts I had no hand at all. The post assigned to me lay behind the scenes. I painted the scenes, copied out the parts, prompted, made up the actors' faces, and was entrusted, too, with various stage effects, such as thunder, the singing of nightingales, and so on. Since I had no proper social position and no decent clothes, at the rehearsals I held aloof from the rest in the shadows of the wings and maintained a shy silence. I painted the scenes at the Azhogins either in the barn or in the yard. I was assisted by Andrei Ivanov, a house painter, or, as he called himself, a contractor for all kinds of house decorations, a tall, very thin, pale man of fifty, with a hollow chest, with sunken temples, with blue rings round his eyes, rather terrible to look at, in fact. He was afflicted with some internal malady, and every autumn and spring people said that he wouldn't recover, but after being laid up for a while he would get up and say afterwards with surprise, I have escaped dying again. In the town he was called Radish and they declared that this was his real name. He was as fond of the theatre as I was, and as soon as rumours reached him that a performance was being got up, he threw aside all his work and went to the Ajogins to paint scenes. The day after my talk with my sister I was working at the Ajogins from morning till night. The rehearsal was fixed for seven o'clock in the evening, and an hour before it began all the amateurs were gathered together in the hall, and the eldest, the middle, and the youngest Ajogins were pacing about the stage, reading from manuscript books. Radish, in a long rusty red overcoat and a scarf muffled round his neck, already stood leaning with his head against the wall, gazing with a devout expression at the stage. Madame Ajogin went up first to one and then to another guest, saying something agreeable to each. She had a way of gazing into one's face and speaking softly as though telling a secret. It must be difficult to paint scenery, she said softly coming up to me. I was just talking to Madame Mufki about superstitions when I saw you come in. My goodness, my whole life I have been waging war against superstitions. To convince the servants what nonsense all their terrors are, I always light three candles and begin all my important undertakings on the thirteenth of the month. Dolzhikov's daughter came in, a plump, fair beauty, dressed, as people said, in everything from Paris. She did not act, but a chair was set for her on the stage at the rehearsals, and the performances never began till she had appeared in the front row, dazzling and astounding everyone with her fine clothes. As a product of the capital, she was allowed to make remarks during the rehearsals, 
and she did so with a sweet indulgent smile and one could see that she looked upon our performance as a childish amusement it was said she had studied singing at the petersburg conservatory and even sang for a whole winter in a private opera i thought her very charming and i usually watched her through the rehearsals and performances without taking my eyes off her i had just picked up the manuscript book to begin prompting when my sister suddenly made her appearance without taking off her cloak or hat she came up to me and said come along i beg you i went with her anyuta blagovo also in her hat and wearing a dark veil was standing behind the scenes at the door she was the daughter of the assistant president of the court who had held that office in our town almost ever since the establishment of the circuit court since she was tall and had a good figure her assistance was considered indispensable for tableau vivant and when she represented a fairy or something like glory her face burned with shame but she took no part in dramatic performances and came to the rehearsals only for a moment on some special errand and did not go into the hall now too it was evident that she had only looked in for a minute my father was speaking about you she said dryly blushing and not looking at me dolzhikov has promised you a post on the railway line apply to him to-morrow he will be at home i bowed and thanked her for the trouble she had taken and you can give up this she said indicating the exercise book my sister and she went up to madame azhogin and for two minutes they were whispering with her looking towards me they were consulting about something yes indeed said madame azhogin softly coming up to me and looking intently into my face yes indeed if this distracts you from serious pursuits she took the manuscript book from my hands you can hand it over to someone else don't distress yourself my friend go home and good luck to you i said good-bye to her and went away overcome with confusion as i went down the stairs i saw my sister and anyuta blagovo going away they were hastening along uh, talking eagerly about something probably about my going into the railway service my sister had never been at a rehearsal before and now she was most likely conscience-stricken and afraid her father might find out that without his permission she had been to the azhogins i went to dolzhikov's next day between twelve and one the footman conducted me into a very beautiful room which was the engineer's drawing-room and at the same time his working study everything here was soft and elegant and for a man so unaccustomed to luxury as i was it seemed strange there were costly rugs huge armchairs bronzes pictures golden plush frames among the photographs scattered about the walls there were very beautiful women clever lovely faces easy attitudes from the drawing-room there was a door leading straight into the garden onto a veranda one could see lilac trees one could see a table laid for lunch a number of bottles a bouquet of roses there was a fragrance of spring and expensive cigars a fragrance of happiness 
and everything seemed as though it would say here is a man who has lived and labored and has attained at last the happiness possible on earth the engineer's daughter was sitting at the writing-table reading a newspaper you have come to see my father she asked he is having a shower bath he will be here directly please sit down and wait i sat down i believe you live opposite she questioned me after a brief silence yes i am so bored that i watch every day out of the window you must excuse me she went on looking at the newspaper and i often see your sister she always has such a look of kindness and concentration dolzhikov came in he was rubbing his neck with a towel uh, papa monsieur poloznev said his daughter yes yes blagovo was telling me he turned briskly to me without giving me his hand uh, but listen what can i give you what sort of posts have i got uh, you are a queer set of people he went on aloud in a tone as though he were giving me a lecture a score of you keep coming to me every day you imagine i am the head of a department i am constructing a railway line my friends i have employed for heavy labor i need mechanics smiths navies carpenters well sinkers and none of you can do anything but sit and write you are all clerks and he seemed to me to have the same air of happiness as his rugs and easy chairs he was stout and healthy ruddy-cheeked and broad-chested in a print cotton shirt and full trousers like a toy china sledge driver he had a curly round beard and not a single gray hair a hooked nose and clear dark guileless eyes what can you do he went on there is nothing you can do i am an engineer i am a man of an assured position but before they gave me a railway line i was for years in harness i have been a practical mechanic for two years i worked in belgium as an oiler you can judge for yourself my dear fellow what kind of work can i offer you of course that is so i muttered in extreme confusion unable to face his clear guileless eyes can you work the telegraph anyway he asked after a moment's thought yes i have been a telegraph clerk hm well we will see then meanwhile meanwhile go to dubechnia i have got a fellow there but he is a wretched creature and what will my duties consist of i asked we shall see go there meanwhile i will make arrangements only please don't get drunk and don't worry me with requests of any sort or i shall send you packing he turned away from me without even a nod i bowed to him and his daughter who was reading a newspaper and went away my heart felt so heavy that when my sister began asking me how the engineer had received me i could not utter a single word i got up early in the morning at sunrise to go to dubechnia there was not a soul in our great dvoryansky street 
everyone was asleep and my footsteps rang out with a solitary hollow sound the poplars covered with dew filled the air with soft fragrance i was sad i did not want to go away from the town i was fond of my native town it seemed to be so beautiful and so snug i loved the fresh greenery the still sunny morning the chiming of our bells but the people with whom i lived in this town were boring alien to me sometimes even repulsive i did not like them nor understand them i did not understand what these sixty-five thousand people lived for and by i knew that kimri lived by boots that tula made samovars and guns that odessa was a seaport but what our town was and what it did i did not know great dvoryansky street and the two other smartest streets lived on the interest of capital and on salaries received by officials from the public treasury but what the other eight streets which ran parallel for over two miles and vanished beyond the hills lived upon was always an insoluble riddle to me and the way those people lived one is ashamed to describe no garden no theatre no decent band the public library and the club library were only visited by jewish youths so that the magazines and new books lay for months uncut rich and well-educated people slept in close stuffy bedrooms on wooden bedsteads infested with bugs their children were kept in revoltingly dirty rooms called nurseries and the servants even the old and respected ones slept on the floor in the kitchen covered with rugs on ordinary days the houses smelt of beetroot soup and on fast days of sturgeon cooked in sunflower oil the food was not good and the drinking water was unwholesome in the town council at the governors at the head priests on all sides in private houses people had been saying for years and years that our town had not a good and cheap water supply and that it was necessary to obtain a loan of two hundred thousand from the treasury for laying on water very rich people of whom three dozen could have been counted up in our town and who at times lost whole estates at cards drank their polluted water too and talked all their lives with great excitement of a loan for the water supply and i did not understand that it seemed to me it would have been simpler to take the two hundred thousand out of their own pockets and lay it out on that object i did not know the honest men in the town my father took bribes and imagined that they were given him out of respect for his moral qualities at the high school in order to be moved up rapidly from class to class the boys went to board with their teachers who charged them exorbitant sums the wife of the military commander took bribes from the recruits when they were called up before the board and even deigned to accept refreshments from them 
and on one occasion could not get up from her knees in church because she was drunk the doctors took bribes too when the recruits came up for examination and the town doctor and the veterinary surgeon levied a regular tax on the butcher's shops and the restaurants at the district school they did a trade in certificates qualifying for partial exemption from military service the higher clergy took bribes from the humbler priests and from the church elders at the municipal the artisans and all the other boards every petitioner was pursued by a shout don't forget your thanks and the petitioner would turn back to give sixpence or a shilling and those who did not take bribes such as the higher officials of the department of justice were haughty offered two fingers instead of shaking hands were distinguished by the frigidity and narrowness of their judgments spent a great deal of time over cards drank to excess married heiresses and undoubtedly had a pernicious corrupting influence on those around them it was only the girls who had still the fresh fragrance of moral purity most of them had higher impulses pure and honest hearts but they had no understanding of life and believed that bribes were given out of respect for moral qualities and after they were married grew old quickly let themselves go completely and sank hopelessly in the mire of vulgar petty bourgeois existence a railway line was being constructed in our neighborhood on the eve of feast days the streets were thronged with ragged fellows whom the townspeople called navvies and of whom they were afraid and more than once i had seen one of these tatterdemalions with a blood-stained countenance being led to the police station while the samovar or some linen wet from the wash was carried behind by way of material evidence the navvies usually congregated about the taverns and the market-place they drank ate and used bad language and pursued with shrill whistles every woman of light behavior who passed by to entertain this hungry rabble our shopkeepers made cats and dogs drunk with vodka or tied an old kerosene can to a dog's tail a hue and cry was raised and the dog dashed along the street jingling the can squealing with terror it fancied some monster was close upon its heels it would run far out of the town into the open country and there sink exhausted there were in the town several dogs who went about trembling with their tails between their legs and people said this diversion had been too much for them and had driven them mad a station was being built four miles from the town it was said that the engineers asked for a bribe of fifty thousand roubles for bringing the line right up to the town but the town council could only consent to give forty thousand they could not come to an agreement over the difference and now the townspeople regretted it as they had to make a road to the station and that it was reckoned would cost more 
the sleepers and rails had been laid throughout the whole length of the line and trains ran up and down it bringing building materials and laborers and further progress was only delayed on account of the bridges which dolzhikov was building and some of the stations were not yet finished dubechnya as our first station was called was a little under twelve miles from the town i walked the cornfields bathed in the morning sunshine were bright green it was a flat cheerful country and in the distance there were the distinct outlines of the station of ancient barrows and far-away homesteads how nice it was out there in the open and how i longed to be filled with the sense of freedom if only for that one morning that i might not think of what was being done in the town not think of my needs not feel hungry nothing has so marred my existence as an acute feeling of hunger which made images of buckwheat porridge rissoles and baked fish mingle strangely with my best thoughts here i was standing alone in the open country gazing upward at a lark which hovered in the air at the same spot trilling as though in hysterics and meanwhile i was thinking how nice it would be to eat a piece of bread and butter or i would sit down by the roadside to rest and shut my eyes to listen to the delicious sounds of may and what haunted me was the smell of hot potatoes though i was tall and strongly built i had as a rule little to eat and so the predominant sensation throughout the day was hunger and perhaps that was why i knew so well how it is that such multitudes of people toil merely for their daily bread and can talk of nothing but things to eat at dubechnya they were plastering the inside of the station and building a wooden upper story to the pumping shed it was hot there was a smell of lime and the workmen sauntered listlessly between the heaps of shavings and mortar rubble the pointsman lay asleep near his sentry box and the sun was blazing full on his face there was not a single tree the telegraph wire hummed faintly and hawks were perching on it here and there i wandering too among the heaps of rubbish and not knowing what to do recalled how the engineer in answer to my question what my duties would consist in had said we shall see when you are there but what could one see in that wilderness the plasters spoke of the foreman and of a certain fedor vasilyev i did not understand and gradually i was overcome by depression the physical depression in which one is conscious of one's arms and legs and huge body and does not know what to do with them or where to put them after i had been walking about for at least a couple of hours i noticed that there were telegraph poles running off to the right from the station and that they ended a mile or a mile and a half away at a white stone wall the workman told me the office was there and at last i reflected that that was where i ought to go it was a very old manor house deserted long ago 
the wall round it of porous white stone was mouldering and had fallen away in places and the lodge the blank wall of which looked out on the open country had a rusty roof with patches of tin plate gleaming here and there on it within the gates could be seen a spacious courtyard overgrown with rough weeds and an old manor-house with sun-blinds on the windows and a high roof red with rust two lodges exactly alike stood one on each side of the house to right and to left one had its windows nailed up with boards near the other of which the windows were open there was washing on the line and there were calves moving about the last of the telegraph poles stood in the courtyard and the wire from it ran to the window of the lodge of which the blank wall looked out into the open country the door stood open i went in by the telegraph apparatus a gentleman with a curly dark head wearing a reefer coat made of sailcloth was sitting at a table he glanced at me morosely from under his brows but immediately smiled and said hello better than nothing it was ivan Cheprakov, an old schoolfellow of mine who had been expelled from the second class for smoking we used at one time during autumn to catch goldfinches finches and linnets together and to sell them in the market early in the morning while our parents were still in their beds we watched for flocks of migrating starlings and shot at them with small shot then we picked up those that were wounded and some of them died in our hands in terrible agonies i remember to this day how they moaned in the cage at night those that recovered we sold and swore with the utmost effrontery that they were all cocks on one occasion at the market i had only one starling left which i had offered to purchasers in vain till at last i sold it for a farthing anyway it's better than nothing i said to comfort myself as i put the farthing in my pocket and from that day the street urchins and the schoolboys called after me better than nothing and to this day the street boys and the shopkeepers mock at me with the nickname though no one remembers how it arose Cheprakov was not of robust constitution he was narrow-chested round-shouldered and long-legged he wore a silk cord for a tie and had no trace of a waistcoat and his boots were worse than mine with the heels trodden down on one side he stared hardly even blinking with a strained expression as though he were just going to catch something and he was always in a fuss you wait a minute he would say fussily you listen whatever was i talking about we got into conversation i learned that the estate on which i now was had until recently been the property of the cheprakovs and had only the autumn before passed into the possession of dolzhikov who considered it more profitable to put his money into land than to keep it in notes and had already bought up three good-sized mortgaged estates in our neighborhood at the sale Cheprakov's mother had reserved for herself the right to live for the next two years in one of the lodges at the side and had obtained a post for her son in the office. I should think it could buy, 
Chebrakov said of the engineer. See what he fleeces out of the contractors alone? He fleeces everyone. Then he took me to dinner, deciding fussily that I should live with him in the lodge and have my meals from his mother. She is a bit stingy, he said, but she won't charge you much. It was very cramped in the little rooms in which his mother lived. They were all, even the passage and the entry, piled up with furniture, which had been brought from the big house after the sale, and the furniture was all old-fashioned mahogany. Madame Cheprakov, a very stout middle-aged lady with slanting Chinese eyes, was sitting in a big armchair by the window, knitting a stocking. She received me ceremoniously. This is Poloznev, mamma. Cheprakov introduced me. He's going to serve here. Are you a nobleman? She asked in a strange, disagreeable voice. It seemed to me to sound as though fat were bubbling in her throat. Yes, I answered. Sit down. The dinner was a poor one. Nothing was served but pies filled with bitter curd and milk soup. Yelena Nikiforovna, who presided, kept blinking in a queer way, first with one eye and then with the other. She talked, she ate, but yet there was something deathly about her whole figure, and one almost fancied the faint smell of a corpse. There was only a glimmer of life in her, a glimmer of consciousness that she had been a lady who had once had her own serfs, that she was the widow of a general whom the servants had to address as Your Excellency, and when these feeble relics of life flickered up in her for an instant, she would say to her son, Jean, you are not holding your knife properly. Or she would say to me, drawing a deep breath, with the mincing air of a hostess trying to entertain a visitor, you know we have sold our estate of course it is a pity we are used to the place but dolzhikov has promised to make jean station-master of dubetchnya so we shall not have to go away we shall live here at the station and that is just the same as being on our own property the engineer is so nice don't you think he is very handsome until recently, the Chiprakovs had lived in a wealthy style, but since the death of the general everything had been changed. Elena Nikiforovna had taken to quarrelling with the neighbours, to going to law, and to not paying her bailiffs or her labourers. She was in constant terror of being robbed, and in some ten years Dubechnya had become unrecognisable. Behind the great house was an old garden, which had already run wild and was overgrown with rough weeds and bushes. I walked up and down the veranda, which was still solid and beautiful. Through the glass doors one could see a room with parqueted floor, probably the drawing-room, an old-fashioned piano and pictures in deep mahogany frames. There was nothing else. In the old flower-beds all that remained were peonies and poppies, which lifted their white and bright red heads above the grass. 
young maples and elms already nibbled by the cows grew beside the paths drawn up and hindering each other's growth the garden was thickly overgrown and seemed impassable but this was only near the house where there stood poplars fir trees and old lime trees all of the same age relics of the former avenues further on beyond them the garden had been cleared for the sake of hay and here it was not moist and stuffy and there were no spiders webs in one's mouth and eyes a light breeze was blowing the further one went the more open it was and here in the open space were cherries plums and spreading apple trees disfigured by props and by canker and pear trees so tall that one could not believe they were pear trees this part of the garden was let to some shopkeepers of the town and it was protected from thieves and starlings by a feeble-minded peasant who lived in a shanty in it the garden growing more and more open till it became definitely a meadow sloped down to the river which was overgrown with green weeds and osiers near the mill dam was the mill pond deep and full of fish a little mill with a thatched roof was working away with a wrathful sound and frogs croaked furiously circles passed from time to time over the smooth mirror-like water and the water-lilies trembled stirred by the lively fish on the further side of the river was the little village dubechnya the still blue mill-pond was alluring with its promise of coolness and peace and now all this the mill-pond and the mill and the snug-looking banks belonged to the engineer and so my new work began i received and forwarded telegrams wrote various reports and made fair copies of the notes of requirements the complaints and the reports sent to the office by the illiterate foremen and workmen but for the greater part of the day i did nothing but walk about the room waiting for telegrams or made a boy sit in the lodge while i went for a walk in the garden until the boy ran to tell me that there was a tapping at the operating machine i had dinner at madame Chiprakov's. meat we had very rarely our dishes were all made of milk and wednesdays and fridays were fast days and on those days we had pink plates which were called lenten plates madame Chiprakov was continually blinking it was her invariable habit and i always felt ill at ease in her presence as there was not enough work in the lodge for one chiprakov did nothing but simply dozed or went with his gun to shoot ducks on the mill pond in the evenings he drank too much in the village or the station and before going to bed stared in the looking-glass and said hello ivan chiprakov when he was drunk he was very pale and kept rubbing his hands and laughing with a sound like a neigh <laughs> by way of bravado he used to strip and run about the country naked he used to eat flies and say they were rather sour end of section three